Hi, I'm James Valentine. This is Life's Booming. Grab a cuppa and get ready for an amazing story. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm usually at the lower levels of the bamboo and plastic treehouse where I live, at Taylor Camp. But this morning I've climbed to the third floor, high up in the treehouse, to sense the sound of the ocean and to wake Chris up. He's still asleep. Here the structure is moving with the slightest breeze. The leaves of the java plum rustle on the plastic roof. Wow, last night there was a wild storm, thunder that echoed in the nearby canyons, and sheets of lightning that flashed through the clear plastic roof, turning pitch black to daylight for seconds. The intense rain pummeled the taut plastic roof like a thousand crazy drummers. Now, as the morning light plays through the trees, the storm is gone. The sound of the surf is noticeably louder than yesterday, which means the waves will be large and hopefully good. I can still taste the salt on my arm from yesterday's surf. Breakfast is simple. We quickly slice a pawpaw in half and scoop out the seeds, then fill a cavity with granola, and a topping of yogurt. Devoured in minutes, the empty skin is tossed into the bush, the spoon quickly washed, and with our surfboards, we are soon on our way to check the break. It's a marvelous feeling, running past the tropical jungle verge that surrounds the road. Here, Nature is ever-present and I feel completely a part of it. Electricity, photography, surfing, sustainability, and Elizabeth Taylor. Now, look, it might sound like I'm just throwing a bunch of random ideas around, but these are all important details of the very interesting character you're about to meet. He began his adult life as an apprentice electrician, but a one-way ticket to Hawaii with a backpack and a surfboard to spend nine months living in a treehouse would change his life forever. This is Lloyd Godman's story of no regrets. Hello, Lloyd. Hello, James. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm liking this. There's, uh, there's lots of hints of adventure here. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy story. So let's start with, you, you grew up in New Zealand? I did, yeah, in Dunedin, which is right down near the bottom of the South Island. What was young Lloyd like? Well, Lloyd was always kind of the round peg that didn't fit into the square hole in some ways. But when I was about 10, I got into competitive swimming, and I used to actually do miles and miles swimming up and down over the tiles. And then I discovered the ocean and surf life-saving and surfing, and that sort of changed everything, really. Yeah, right. What was the Dunedin or the New Zealand surfing scene of your childhood? Was it similar to Australia? Yeah, just a lot less people. 
I mean, some really good breaks, but a lot less people. And, of course, you're fighting the cold the whole time. I, I actually remember a really funny story where I had to hitchhike down to a friend's place to meet up with him to go for a surf, and it was snowing. Right. And this old couple picked me up and said, you know, you'll be freezing. You better, we've got some hot soup. And they gave me hot soup and sort of warmed me up in the car and said, and where are you going? And I said, surfing. (laughs) (laughs) And it was snowing. Fantastic. And I've met, I've, I've met some guys that like surfed, you know, Bells and Great Ocean Road in the 60s and 70s. They said they used to use diving wetsuits with woolen jumpers underneath. We didn't even have that. It, when I started, it was like rugby jerseys and now it's freezing. You know, freezing. Free, free. freezing. What board are you surfing when you're first doing it in New Zealand? I originally started in surf lifesaving. So they were big skis, wooden skis, which were very cumbersome, awkward things. Then I progressed to a fiberglass board, which was probably about seven, eight feet because, you know, the, the small board revolution was just starting to kick in. Then I went into kneeboards, actually, and surfed kneeboards. After that sort of, like, what sounds like an adventurous sort of teenagehood, what do you decide to do? You become an, an apprentice electrician. Well, that was really my father's idea. You know, if you get a trade behind you, I'm an electrician, never did me any harm, you'll be right kind of thing. So it was something that I persevered with and, I mean, it taught me good discipline in terms of get up every morning, go to work and do your stuff, but it wasn't something that I was immensely interested in. Yeah. I became a qualified electrician and ended up actually working on large construction sites where they had like a men's camp where you actually stayed on site. That was a real eye-opener in terms of the way people treated alcohol, gambling, women, all of that stuff. And it wasn't a nice place to be, really, in some ways. This is when, like 60s New Zealand? That would have been in 1970. And you start getting interested in photography. Well, that happened at the when I was an apprentice electrician because at the the place I did my apprenticeship, it was a newspaper and printing house and they had dark rooms and I used to make friends with some of the photographers and they'd sneak me in during the lunch times and I'd spend lunch times in there learning about photography and how to process film and make prints and do things like that. What a perfect introduction. It was good. It was interesting. Some of the guys in the newspaper, the photographers were really encouraging and others didn't want me there at all. Right. So it was kind of like some of them felt it was their territory. Gary Vandermark, he was the most encouraging and yet he was the most qualified because he he could see there was some creativity in my work, whereas a lot of the newspaper photographers, they had a certain style to fulfil what the newspaper was after. But I, I was doing all kinds of multiple exposure stuff and all sorts of crazy things right back when I was sort of 18, I suppose. Right. Like what, what were you actually interested in? Were you trying to create more artworks and trying to create a, take a lovely landscape or something? Yes, definitely. And that, that was influenced by some of the more progressive surf magazines. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I'm seeing those sort of, um, you know, negative images and the sort of a swirl of colours and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, you know, sort of morning of the earth kind of influences and stuff like yeah. that. El, LB Felzoon and John Witzig and people like that. Yeah. I was doing surf photography and I had people that I worked with at the newspaper. Some of the engineers helped me make a underwater housing. So, you know, managed to take some water shots. 
I suppose, you know, Greenow was a big influence there, but, I mean, you can't match George. He, he's on a level by himself. He sort of inspired so many people, but he's a kind of one-off, that guy. You know. So tell us who George is. Who's George Greenow? Well, George was a Californian, and he, and this is where the Hawaii story comes in a little bit, he ended up in Byron Bay. He actually lives in a Broken Head, and he really started the shortboard revolution because he invented this flexible small kneeboard that could just tear the waves to pieces. All of the surfers around Lennox Head and places like that, Bob McTavish and people like that who are riding longer boards, were quite envious of what George could do on a wave because the board was just so much more manoeuvrable. And that's where the shortboard revolution really started from was they just started making the board shorter and shorter. And George actually modified a, an aerial 16mm camera and filmed inside the tube. So if you ever see what is called the coming of the dawn, which is in the movie Crystal Voyager, it's just a piece of visual poetry. It's just beautiful. And people, even with GoPros today, they still struggle to copy what, what he was doing. But George, a lot of the film wasn't shot on the kneeboard. It was actually shot on an air mat right? because it had more flotation. And when they decided to take that film and turn it into something that could be shown on the big screen, they needed to put sound with it. So for George's sequence in the film, they actually did a contra deal with Pink Floyd. Echoes is the soundtrack. So Pink Floyd got a copy of George's film and George got a copy of Echoes to go with his footage. And um, It's not a bad it, deal. Uh, <laughs> not many people can say that, you know. No, no, no. But I love, I love this era in film, in television, in surfing, this sort of stuff. It's so do-it-yourself. You know, like now we're used to, if you want an underwater housing, there's one at the shop, you know. Like your phone will have an underwater housing. It's got a camera in it. Back then, you're building the waterproofing. They're inventing the boards. They're, they're sewing up wetsuits. Like it's, it's, people are so hands-on at this time. That's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, George made the underwater housings. He even made a light system so that he went out before the dawn and actually filmed surfing with spotlights shining up into the, into the waves. The guy was a genius. From this period, you then decide to go to Hawaii. And Hawaii at this, at this time is a mecca for surfing, isn't it? You would have been naturally drawn there? Hawaii is, I mean, one of the key meccas for surfing, period. If you're anything in the surfing world and you haven't surfed Hawaii, you haven't really surfed. I mean, there are other places as well, but that North Shore stretch of coast is just unbelievable. But what actually happened with that story is Chris Brock who I met in New Zealand, was a friend of George's. So Chris introduced me to a lot of the things that George was into, like air mat surfing, uh, what he was doing with flexible knee boards, what he was doing with cameras and so on. And Chris also knew Tommy Taylor, who was Elizabeth Taylor's nephew. And Tommy said, look, if you go to Hawaii, my dad has this kind of 
area where it's a bit of a long story, but um, Howard Taylor, which is Tommy's dad, wasn't allowed to build on that section of land, which is where he wanted to build. Mm. He had to build on the other side because it was a tsunami risk. So he allowed a bunch of kind of hippies to live there and they set up like a commune there. There was actually, I think, 52 houses in all. Mm. So I went over with Chris Brock and we stayed at Taylor Camp and eventually we inherited one of the houses. Somebody gifted, moved out and gifted us the three-story treehouse. When you say a treehouse, do you mean that literally? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was three stories. So when the wind blew, the house moved. Right. (laughs) And they were made of bamboo and plastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had a wood floor from salvaged materials. And there were three layers, three levels. Wow. And, you, you know, right up the top, things were swaying around. So the wind blew through the house because in those tropical climates, you don't really need to have opening and closing windows. Yeah. It was clear plastic. So when there was a thunderstorm at night, you experienced the whole light show and rain and leaves falling on the roof and sliding down. So it really made me aware of nature, I suppose. You just live very simply and in nature. Which is such the ethos of surfing, isn't it? There's that connection with nature as well. Are you surfing every day from Taylor Camp? Is that the point? What we used to do is we'd usually get two surfs and the Americans that were there weren't that good at getting up in the morning. At that period of time, anyway, (laughs) we used to sort of... um, get up really early, go for a morning surf. They would roll down about half past 10, go out for a surf. We would go in when they were having lunch and then we'd go home and prepare for the next day. Who else was living there? Did famous surfers come there or who who was there? We were on Kauai, so it wasn't on Oahu uh, where the main surfing action is. But I used to surf with a well-known surfer of the time called Billy Hamilton and a couple of times he asked if I could babysit his kids. It wasn't until years later that I actually worked out that one of those kids was Laird Hamilton. Okay. Who really invented, was one of the, at the forefront of jet ski tow and surfing, invented foil surfing. You know, he's a total legend. It was kind of interesting. Yeah. I think it's your babysitting that stimulated his interest in those things. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's what made that happen. Yeah. <laughs> now, so there's this strange Elizabeth Taylor connection, and it's one of her husbands who has the land. Did you meet Elizabeth Taylor? Yes. It, it wasn't her husband. It was her brother. Howard worked at the university, and two of Elizabeth's sons were living with Howard. So there was Chris and Michael. I never kind of connected with Michael, but Chris, we used to go out to parties and I used to see him quite often. And which, which, which husband were the fathers of the Elizabeth Taylor children? Not sure on that. <laughs> yeah. uh, Can be hard to pin I, down, I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> one night just before Christmas, we were out on this point looking at the surf, these huge waves coming in, and a big limo pulled up and out got Chris and a few other people, and he said, oh, I'd like to introduce you to my mother, and there was Liz Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) And we just kept looking at the surf, basically. You went, oh, yeah, hi, yeah. I I saw (laughs) Black Beauty. It was good, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That was it, yeah. (laughs) Isn't that funny? So what you had, were you just being deliberately cool or were you actually just not that interested in Elizabeth Taylor? Uh, 
Uh, well, there was the South African guy with us who just, you know, his knees went wobbly and he sort of fell to the ground and mm. I think he asked for an autograph or something like that. But Chris Brock, who was there with me, I mean, we just, we were there to go surfing. I mean, that was the main interest. We didn't really have any, any interest in anything else. <laughs> and I imagine at the time Liz Taylor hadn't met anybody who wasn't interested in her. That might have been the first time that had happened. Look, I don't know. I mean, you know, she was polite. We just said hi, great to meet you, and that was it. She probably appreciated it. I don't know. So what did this do for you, this Taylor Camp experience? How did it change you? Well, it certainly completely put me in touch with nature. And coming from a conservative background in New Zealand, it just showed me that there's always other ways of doing things. It was a pretty crazy place. There were some crazy people here escaping the Vietnam War. There were veterans there who were shell-shocked. There were all sorts. There were professors there. There were builders. There were architects in the camp. There were all sorts of people. It was pretty intriguing. It seems to me like you went to the 70s. Do you know what I mean? Like you went (laughs) era of the 60s and 70s. Like I often think of that the 60s didn't get to Australia until about 1969. Whereas you sort of, you, you're in conservative old New Zealand where, you know, of course you're going to be an electrician, get a, be sensible. You went and found the counterculture as such. You went and found that era in, on Hawaii. That's, that's, that's true. But before I went to Hawaii, I did get into a lot of rock band photography. So I actually photographed Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, oh. Joe Cocker, a whole lot of those bands. Right. Recently, the Goat's Head Soup was re-released by the Rolling Stones and they included four images of that I shot of the Rolling Stones in that book that went with the re-release. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. The thing that was different that I was doing that was different back then, and this is pre-Hawaii, was I was shooting colour film. Right. Back in those days, most people didn't have a quality camera People who did have a quality camera, a lot of them didn't know how to use them. The fastest film you could buy back in those days was 160 ISO, which is very slow. And I developed a technique of uprating that, going to the labs and getting them to overdevelop the film to get a result. And not many people were doing that. So some of those images are quite rare in that they're colour images. Mm. Whereas a lot of the newspaper people who they were all shooting black and white, there was no, yeah, right, right, nothing because there's no, there's no color newspaper, is there? Is that no, they're gonna not at that point, no, yeah. yeah. And it seems to me like the way in which you come to photography, I don't know, I don't know a lot about photography, but I often think, I often wonder whether people come to it from a purely visual sense. You've come to it from quite a technical sense. You, you, you had a dark room from the, from the word go, you're an electrician, you know, so you're understanding the process of, uh, of production. I've always been interested in a sense in science and it's one of the things with what we're doing with the plant work now, which is kind of interesting, is that I see often governments promoting this idea of STEM, but actually when you add the A in for arts, you get STEAM and you can go places with STEAM. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. All right, so after Hawaii, you come back to New Zealand. What, what do you end up doing? Did you want to be back in New Zealand? Did that feel constraining at all? I uh, just ran out of money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when I initially came back, I worked as an electrician for my father, which is not necessarily a good idea to do that. But anyway, I did that for a number of years. Eventually, I ended up 
working as a audiovisual technician at the local Polytech. And the Polytech was quite unique in that time in that they had inherited an art department, which actually was the oldest, as far as I know, I think it was the oldest continuous art school in Australasia. And a Polytech is sort of not, is is what would we think of that as more like um, a technical college? Or a TAFE? Yeah, right, right. So the art school was offered to the university who saw it as a vocational program and they didn't want it. So the art school moved to the Polytechnic because I was preparing visual material for all the departments. I was getting all these art books coming across my desk to take photographs out of, to make slides to show the students. Right. So suddenly it was like, you know, I would photograph those books fairly efficiently and have time to read them. (laughs) So so I kind of got uh, an arts education, you know, and I got exposed to a lot of interesting stuff. And some of the lecturers invited me to go into their classes and learn stuff from there. Eventually what happened is the guy who was in those days he was principal of the Polytechnic, was a very old school blackboard and chalk guy. And he decided the year that he was leaving that he would he would get rid of the audiovisual department and I was this technician they didn't know what to do with. So they moved me to the art school, mm. which was just like moving a pig into really. I yeah, mean, it right. was absolutely right. fantastic. <laughs> Uh, When he retired, one of the statements he made is, and this is a quote, I'm really glad we didn't get into electronics and computers too deeply because I suspect it will be a passing fad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, he might have been right. Maybe we might have gone back to steam. (laughs) Who knows, you know. Um, Did you become artist? Did you become photographer? What did you become out of this? Well, there was very little photographic education around at that point. You could join the Air Force and become a photographer. You could get taught by going to medical school, being a medical photographer. And I ended up actually doing a two-year correspondence course from New York. And I kind of wondered whether it was any good and whether they were just ticking boxes or what. So I carried out my own experiment as a quality control and I I handed in a dud experiment, Uh, you know, a dud assignment and they failed it and made me do it again. So that was my quality control. But I I actually (laughs) learned a lot from that course and that gave me a diploma. When Mm. I was in the art school, I had the opportunity to set up a photography department because nobody knew much about it, certainly like fine art photography. And then from there I did a whole series of very substantial exhibitions and set up the department. It became a highly successful department. Eventually, I um, came over here to RMIT as a keynote speaker for a conference and met my love, Tess, and that's why I'm in Melbourne. (laughs) Right. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so tell tell me about one of your adventures during this time. Where did you go? What What were you doing? I came up with the idea of taking a group of artists down to the sub-Antarctic islands of New Zealand, it actually took about three or four years to put the project together. And the stumbling block was the Navy would not take women on board the frigate that we were using for transport or part transport anyway. And I just said, look, you know, we can't run an arts project if there's 
no woman artist. So we kind of dug in on that one and we actually ended up getting Michael Cullen, who was Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand at the time, as our patron. And this was a time when Helen Clark, who was the Prime Minister, took on the arts portfolio herself because she saw arts as, as one of the key drivers to creativity and the economy and all sorts of things. And Michael Cullen just wrote to the Navy and said, look, this is a wonderful project. Get on and do it. And so the first woman who sailed on a New Zealand Navy boat were artists and they slept in the radio room. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, I've heard that we do, there's projects will happen here where a bunch of will go to the outback or they'll go down to Macquarie Island or something like that or the, to the Antarctic itself. And so any artist of any, in any medium, and then however they interpret it is interesting, right? Well, that was our argument that artists are, in a sense, scientists. They just explore in different ways. They research and explore in different ways. Following the trip to the subantarctic islands, there have been many other programs to the Antarctic, and as you say, Macquarie Island. They kind of came from the project that we did to the subantarctic islands. What kind of works came out of it? Some artists, I think, struggled with it. There were, I think, 11 artists altogether. Some did some fantastic work. For me, it completely changed the direction of my work. It mm. was a big expedition of people who went down there. There were people from museums. There were goat shooters who were trying to get feral goats off some of the islands. There were Department of Conservation people. There were all sorts of people. So Department of Conservation asked us, if you see any rubbish washed up on the shores collect it and bring it back because we'll take all the harmful stuff like fishing nets and that back to New Zealand and dispose of it so it doesn't affect the wildlife. So we asked them because we found artefacts that went back to like the 1860s and we said, well, what is the difference between an artefact and rubbish? And they couldn't answer uh, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, rubbish is an artefact in a sense. Yeah, it tells yeah. us about humanity and the people that were engaged with that object. So we collected lots of harmful stuff, put it on the frigate, and the first night we were at sea, they threw it out the back with their own rubbish and said, well, that's what ships do. Ships don't sail around the world with rubbish. I mean, if you, if you look at photos of Greenpeace uh, or Sea Shepherd, you will see rubbish containers on the ship, on the deck. You don't see that in many other ships. I, I don't know where they're at now, but back in... When we went down in 89, it was just disposed of. It was just thought the ocean was um, somewhere you could just check stuff. So what happened from that experience is I developed a technique of making hybrid photographic prints that had a photograph of the island taken at the island surrounded by photograms, which is photograms are made by laying objects on the paper. And it's cameraless photography. And the objects were symbolic of different historical events that had taken place in the islands. And that was the connection. Right. So you might, ha you might have a, a bottle, for example, or a key or something. Exactly. And then a shell. Yeah. 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 A bone or something like that. Right, right. Yeah. So let's come to some of your more recent work. What are air plants? Uh, well, air plants are Talansias. They're in the bromeliad family. They're a genus of the bromeliad family. And there's about 730 different species. The most extreme examples of these are what they call xerophytes, 
some of them almost grown to salt water and I even took one out for a surf on my helmet. (laughs) (laughs) I now work with a friend, Jeff Beach, and we're looking at ways that we can integrate these plants into contemporary architecture and also historical architecture in a way which is fully sustainable. So what people are trying to do with roof gardens, vertical gardens with reticulated water systems, we can do all that without any risk to the building, without risk to people, without a lot of maintenance because maintenance with a lot of the reticulated systems is very heavy and Mm. very reduced weight. So it means we can actually make things that suspend, rotate or move over a window as a screen. Lloyd, you, your interests are so diverse. Like what a, ra- what a range we've covered in this conversation, you know, from, from surfing to photography to art to now um, a kind of combination of art, architecture and, and biology. It, it, look, it's, you're supposed to be retired, but, you know, it's not happening really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm struck by how broad these interests are. Like if you said, said you were developing a new form of film or – you know, like you've discovered a, a new way of, of surfing that's easier on the on the old joints or something like that. That might make, you know, this is a whole other departure. Um, well, it wasn't really because the photogram work got larger and larger and more complex to the point where I was making colour photograms to go in art galleries that were 22 metres long right. in colour. And you yeah. have to make those in sections in, in total darkness. And that spun off into using the leaves of bromeliad plants as a form of photography to grow images into by masking parts of the leaf off using the process of photosynthesis. Wow. I think I got that. (laughs) So you're using the plant. Just say that again. You're using the plant. Yeah, I put a a tape on the leaf. I leave it in the sun for four months. I pull the tape off and I've got an image. Oh, so the tape is photographic film tape. No, no, it's, it's an opaque tape to stop the light getting it to it. Right. Oh, I see. So then you've got an image under that. Yeah. So that, that crea- oh. Because the light's not wow. getting onto the cells of the plant. The light's not getting And there. I explored the idea. I sort of came up with this idea that, you see, the word photography doesn't actually mean camera. Mm. It means drawing with light. And I kind of came up with this idea that the largest abstract photograph we know of is the planet. The planet is a light-sensitive living photograph. And if we look at sequences from satellites, we can actually see the change of vegetation over the planet during a a year. But we, unfortunately, we can also see where the Amazon is being eaten into and deforestation and all of those sorts of problems as well. But, mm. you know, we live on a pretty amazing place, the planet, and we, we really need to understand it and protect it. That's kind of where I'm at. So what happened with the, the plant stuff is it evolved into interactive plant installations in galleries. And I did some of those here in Melbourne. I did some in New Zealand. I even did one in the Museum of Contemporary Art in Atlanta in Georgia. And then I just sort of thought what we really need to be doing is putting plants on buildings and leaving them there, not putting them in an art gallery for, you know, a month or so. So that that was the impetus to try and get the plants onto uh, architecture in, in an 
a sustainable manner. So what we did to test the plants was we started putting them on buildings in the most extreme locations. So just on Monday, we went up and checked the plants on top of Eureka Tower. Which is Eureka Tower's in Melbourne, right? Yeah. on the roof, 92 floors up on Eureka Tower in Melbourne, 295 metres above the pavement below where mortals walk. It's windy up here, like gusts well over 200k, but I'm not bothered. In fact, I recently flowered. I've been here for over seven years and rely on nothing but my evolved biology. Developed on high mountains in South America. I'm a resilient bugger, even if I say so myself. I am part of an experiment to prove that plants can be integrated into architecture in a fully sustainable manner. I survive by closing my stomata during the day which means I don't transpire any moisture when it's hot. I guard my water carefully. Most plants can't do this, so they wilt when the days are really hot. When the sun is out, I use my reserves to create malic acid, which I store. Then at night, I open this tomato, take in CO2 and use the acid to grow. Oxygen goes out, but very little water is transpired. It's kind of like what people are trying to do with solar panels and batteries. But I involved to do this 15 million years ago. I'm covered in hair-like trichome cells, which act like sponges and can absorb all my water and nutrient requirements from the atmosphere. This is why they call me an air plant. The silver trichome cells also reflect a high percentage of light, which protects me. And I can even uptake heavy metal particles that are emitted from these strange fossil fuel burning machines that zoom about below me. We've now got them on uh, the NGV, we've got them on Melbourne City Council, we've got them on Fed Square. They're sitting about 200 mil off the roof at Fed Square, so they get insane heat reflected off that roof. The ones, actually, I can just twist the computer and you'll see up in the up in the ceiling, oh, yeah. this is skylight. Yeah. Well, there's a screen with some plants on it over there that stops yeah. the, the sun coming in in summer. So they move up and down over the skylights. And that old galvanised roof, we've measured at 84 degrees. And yeah. the shade from the plants has reduced it on the roof back to 53. 
Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so it's got all sorts of application in that sort of way. Heat mitigation is huge, yeah. Yeah, the connection I'm seeing here through all these activities, Lloyd, is that you're in early. You know, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, when you first start surfing, surfing's a sort of, it's a peripheral thing. It's, you know, like I grew up, my cousins were allowed to surf, but my parents didn't let us. It's like, no, 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 that's, you know, for rat bags. You're yeah, not doing that, yeah. that sort of stuff. You know, like that's the photography a bit the same, as you say. You had to learn photography where you could. It was only just being accepted as an art form in many ways. You know, it's a legitimate art form. And here you are with this. Isn't it the same sort of thing? We're just starting to understand what we need to do, how we can work with the, the plants of the planet to make the place better. Yes, you're absolutely right. And it was really understanding the way that these plants grow, the science of them, the biology of them, and that we can put them into extreme places. Not all mm. the plants, the project we've got on uh, the plants on the buildings is called Tillandsia Swarm, and you can track that. There's a, you can find it on the internet. But we found the, in Melbourne the plants on the east walls of buildings, and you would think that the morning sun would be gentle on them, they died because right. it's a rain shadow and they don't get enough rain. Put them on the west wall where they get the most horrendous heat in summer afternoons, they also get a west, a west rain, so they survive and grow. Right. So we've, we've kind of done all these experiments and put them in all sorts of places. I love your, I love your eternal curiosity. <laughs> Thank you. It's always sort of asking questions, yeah. This series is called No Regrets, and so we wonder if there's a moment of no regret. Is it that trip to Taylor Camp back all those years, back in the 70s? Is that sort of, did that allow you to become who you are? I think it did, yeah. I mean, the only regret is probably I should have done it sooner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we probably all have that, you know, you think should have done it sooner. Lloyd, you're an inspiration in so many ways. I have, you know, certainly no regrets about this conversation. <laughs> Fantastic to meet you. And thank you so much for being part of the series. That's right. You're most welcome and great to meet you. In the next episode of Life's Booming No Regrets, find out what it takes to travel through more than 30 countries across Europe, Asia and the Americas in a motorhome with your partner and not get a divorce. Thanks for listening in to this episode of Life's Booming No Regrets. If you've loved this story as much as I did, don't forget to tell all your friends in person and online. We'd love it if you left us a review. Of course, if you've got a great story of your own, drop us a line. Life's Booming at seniors.com.au I'm James Valentine. I'll speak with you next time. <laughs>